Well, if you're joining us, we're working through the Gospel of John, and we're coming to a wonderful chapter, chapter 10, that presents Jesus as our Good Shepherd. It's kind of a counterpart to Psalm 23, which we sang. Um, I confess, I like that hymn, like a Savior, like a shepherd, lead us, but I always kind of wonder, what did he mean when he sings, Thou hast loved us, love us still, as if somehow there's a danger he won't. I trust that the author meant, help us to appreciate the fact that you love us, even when we fail you, because that is true, and we'll see that, I think, in our text here today. But if you need, <clears throat> if you, uh, need it and find it helpful, there are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one, either now or later. And there are outlines uh, inside your bulletin. If you didn't get one, feel free to get up and grab one now. We're coming to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. <clears throat> uh, when I was in seminary, one of the things that they emphasized over and over again in our preaching classes was the need to be clear. Uh, one of my professors used to repeat until we all could just mouth it as he began to say it, uh, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And uh, what he was trying to say was, of course, if I'm a little bit unclear, you're going to be totally lost. You won't even know what's going on. And so <clears throat> I uh, agree with him, and I work hard trying to be clear. But I must confess that at times I wonder how the greatest preacher who ever lived, what kind of grade he might have gotten in preaching class, or how he might be... Uh, received in evangelical churches, because sometimes Jesus left his audiences, uh, including even his inner circle, scratching their heads, wondering, what did he mean? Now, of course, Jesus himself was clear, but sometimes he deliberately put things in cryptic language. Um, and his disciples and his hearers did not get it. And he never, according to Scripture, never bothered to explain it, at least to the multitudes. Sometimes he did privately to the disciples. But that's the case here in verse 6 as we read, This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand the things uh, what those things were which he had been saying to them. 
I think our text is the closest thing to a parable that we get in the Gospel of John. Um, There are no parables per se in John, even though um, this maybe you could call an allegory, a symbolic illustration. It doesn't quite fit the parable genre, although the other Gospels record many parables that Jesus spoke. In fact, Matthew 13, 34 says all these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables, and he didn't speak to them without a parable. Now, the point of parables was it reveals the truth to those who are seeking it as they dig a little deeper and try to figure out what does this mean? But at the same time, parables serve to conceal the truth from scoffers or those who just uh, are apathetic, who go, no, I didn't get it, and I don't care, uh, that sort of thing. In verse 6, when it says they did not understand, the, the antecedent to they is the Pharisees, back in chapter 9. They didn't get it. Um, and you might say, well, of course, they weren't believers But today, even many believing commentators still uh, don't get it, or maybe I should say there is a divergent opinion among them as to exactly what Jesus means in this um, illustration that he uh, presents here. I think that one key to understanding this passage is to realize that the chapter numbers were inserted much after John wrote his gospel. Uh, they, those were not in the original text. And sometimes they're helpful, but sometimes they make a division where there shouldn't be a division. And I believe that chapter 10 is very closely wed to chapter 9. You'll notice there is no transitional phrase such as, after these things, or that sort of thing. Um, when we get down to verse 22, John does insert a time marker. He says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place. Uh, That would be in the winter. But I think that verses 1 through 21 tie back into chapter 7, 8, and 9, which took place at the Feast of Dedication, which was in the fall. Um, One hint that we're still in chapter 9, contextually, is in verse 21, when the people who hear him say... uh, talk about him opening the eyes of the man born blind. That's just happened in chapter 9. Also, Jesus begins here with the words, truly, truly, and uh, commentators point out that he never anywhere else begins a new discourse with truly, truly. It's always a continuation of what came before. And so I think we need to understand the events in John uh, 10, 1 through 21, as being closely related to John chapter 9, where Jesus healed the man born blind. You wonder, well, what's the connection? I believe the connection is this. In John chapter 9, we see the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They should have been the spiritual shepherds of Israel, and yet they have failed miserably. And the story of the blind man illustrates that. Rather than listening to his testimony and and, uh, rejoicing, wow, you were born blind and your eyes have been opened? Praise God! They don't do any of that. 
Instead, they chastise him, kick him out of the temple because they don't like his witness to Jesus. And um, Jesus, of course, had violated their Sabbath, legalistic Sabbath rules. And so they were more concerned about their rules than they were about this man. We saw the same thing back in chapter 5. Remember, Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda deliberately on the Sabbath. And uh, the man goes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't say, wow, you were lame for 38 years and you've been healed? Praise God. There's no rejoicing there. Rather, they just uh, immediately go after Jesus for breaking their Sabbath rules. Also, we see the contempt of these religious leaders, supposedly leaders, in chapter 7 and verse 49 when they say, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. I mean, can you imagine a pastor saying that of his flock? Number one, it's an indictment of them because if they don't know the law, guess who's to blame? Uh, The leaders. They should have taught them the law in a loving and patient way. Uh, But they just despise the people. And uh, as we saw in chapter 9, they used their power to try to keep the people in fear so they could maintain their power, threatened if they believed in Jesus, they'd kick them out of the temple and so on. And then we saw their contempt again in chapter 9, verse 34, where they tell this man born blind, you were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us? I mean, that just reeks with contempt and arrogance. And so these men, who should have been the shepherds of Israel, had failed. So in John chapter 10, Jesus draws this sharp contrast between these false shepherds, he calls them thieves and robbers in verse 1, and himself as the true shepherd. Um, As mentioned, many Old Testament passages mention the Lord as the shepherd of his people. Of course, we're all familiar with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Here's the interesting connection. If in the Old Testament, the Lord is the shepherd of his people, and in the New Testament, Jesus is the Lord, uh, the shepherd of his people, then who is Jesus? He is the Lord. He is God. And so we see Jesus here assuming that role himself. I think that probably the picture in the Lord's mind behind John 10 was Ezekiel chapter 34. And if we had time, I would read the the whole chapter. We don't. But in that great chapter, Ezekiel castigates the shepherds of Israel because they had been greedy. They were self-centered. They just used the flock for their own gain. They uh, didn't care for people, especially for the hurting. And the Lord pronounces judgment on those false shepherds. And then he gives this promise in Ezekiel 34, 23. He says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. By the way, this was written after David. So um, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I believe that prophecy was fulfilled when the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, came as the true shepherd of his people, of Israel. So John 10, then, is giving us, in symbolic form, a picture of what happened in John 9. 
in John 9, the good shepherd comes. He opens the eyes of this man born blind. He, as it were, leads him out of the barren fold of Judaism, which the Pharisees were overseeing as these false shepherds, and uh, he brings him to faith in himself. In John 10, uh, verses 1 through 18 are kind of a unit, and they fall into three sections, and for sake of time, I have to break them up in that way. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus contrasts himself as the true shepherd uh, with all these self-centered false shepherds. And then in verses 7 through 10, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, he portrays himself as the door of the sheepfold and that those who go in and out through him will find abundant life in him. And then in verses 11 through 18, he comes back to the shepherd analogy and just declares, I am the good shepherd, and shows that he came to lay down his life to give this abundant life, eternal life, to his sheep. So today we're just focusing on verses 1 through 6, and the point of those verses is that both Jesus' credentials and his qualities uh, prove Jesus to be the true shepherd, uh, and his sheep follow him as their shepherd. So first we're going to look at Jesus' credentials, then at his qualities, and then how his sheep follow him. First of all, notice that Jesus' credentials prove him to be the true shepherd. He begins with those familiar words, truly, truly, which mean, okay, wake up, perk up your ears, listen to this, this is important, and uh, he wants us to pay attention. And the first... The first credential we see of Jesus, the true shepherd, is that he warns the flock about false shepherds. That's in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. He's doing two things by that statement. He is rebuking the false shepherds who were still in his hearing, the Pharisees. And in their presence, he is warning the true sheep, such as the man who has just been healed, the man born blind, don't follow these guys. These guys are not the the real deal. They're the false shepherds. He calls them thieves and robbers. And so Jesus warns about these false teachers One time I read about a seminary class that at the start of the semester, the professor said, we're going to have a a project this semester. We are going to read through the entire New Testament and try and discern what truth above all other truths is the most emphasized in the New Testament. Now, hearing that, I'd probably think, oh, love or faith or something like that, but what they discovered was, by the end of the semester, warnings against false teaching predominate the New Testament more than any other truth. Warnings against false teachers. And uh, Jesus himself, in Matthew 7, 15, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And the metaphor, of course, is picturing 
both the deceptiveness and the destructiveness of false teachers. They're deceiving because they dress up like sheep, look like sheep. I don't know if they bow like sheep, but when they get in the flock, they wreak destruction on the sheep. And so they, their aim is not to build up and care for the flock. It's just to ravage them for their own selfish purposes. But you can be sure, and I wish we all would remember this when temptation strikes, Satan never has your best interests at heart. Satan always wants to hurt you, to kill, to destroy. Always, always, always. But he masks that with deception and makes sin look so tempting because it looks like it'll get you what you want quickly. Remember how he tempted Eve. You know, just eat this. Oh, you'll, you'll be like God. Well, don't we all want to be like God? Of course. But you don't become like God by disobeying God. And Satan always comes in that way. And he often uses men or women who pose as his agents And they infiltrate the church, and they seemingly know the Bible, and they teach the Bible, but they're always just slightly off. And pretty soon, if you follow them, it's a path into destruction. But the the deal is, sin at first seems to get you what you want. Satan makes sure of that. You know, just violate God's standards. See how happy you are at first. And then, as I put it, the bills come due. It's like buying on credit. I mean, if you got a credit card, and, you know, we get offers in the mail all the time or on the computer for credit cards, you can live like a king for a month. You know, you can fly to Europe. You can stay in five-star hotels. You can eat all the good food. Oh, you can just live royally for a month. And then what happens? The bill comes due. And suddenly life isn't so fun and pleasant. And that's the way Satan's aim is. Now, Jesus calls these men thieves and robbers. There's a little difference of meaning. Thieves are more cunning. They break into your house while you're asleep or you're going on vacation and uh, rob what they want and leave. And often you never see a thief. You just come home and go, it's gone. You know, our stuff's gone. Robbers are more upfront, you know. They don't care if you see them unless they have a mask on. They just stick the gun out and say, give me your stuff. And they're more aggressive. But in both cases, again, uh, their, their aim is, I want to profit at your expense, and I don't care about you. And that's how Jesus portrays false teachers. Now, two important lessons here before we leave that point. First of all, Being grounded in sound doctrine is essential and not optional. Sound doctrine. The reason is false teachers, as I said, don't come in with blinking neon signs saying, Hi, I'm a false teacher. I'm here to lead you astray. Uh, They dress up like sheep, but they're wolves. And they're subtle. And so you need to know, you know, that isn't right, what he's saying especially on core truth. Or sometimes they major on the minors and get people to do that, and they lead them astray that way. had a guy this week that emailed me about four times trying to convince me that you're supposed to worship on Saturday, not Sunday. 
And, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I kept saying to him, this isn't the core doctrine of the faith. And if that's what God's leading you to do, have a great time on Saturday. Just make sure you don't get legalistic about it. But he wanted to fight me on that, you know. He kept emailing me back, trying to convince me and so on. And uh, <clears throat> they make major things out of minor. Uh, the second lesson to learn here is Christ-like shepherds warn their flocks about false teachers. Jesus here, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, warned his flock. And I can't be a faithful shepherd if I don't do that. I catch flack for doing that. I've had people leave this church because I do that. Um, but I wouldn't be a faithful shepherd if I didn't do that. And, you know, you read Matthew 23, Jesus is not nice. He's not nice with the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he calls them names. You know, he, he's pretty brutal with them. Uh, Paul and John both named false teachers and warned their flocks by name. Look out for this guy. I've done that sometimes, and oh, I've had people get very upset with me. had a young lady in my church in California early in ministry. She told me, you should always be positive. You shouldn't say negative things like that. I said, well, Jesus did, Paul did, John did, uh, but people don't like that. But if I leave it vague, oh, beware of false teachers, everybody goes, yeah, that's sweet, nice. And they don't connect the dots. They don't get it. That guy is a false teacher. Okay. So sometime you'll hear me name some names. So first credential, Jesus is a true shepherd because he warns the flock about false teachers. Secondly, Jesus is the true shepherd, and we know that because he enters by the door. Verse 2. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. A better translation is the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, the article is not in Greek, but Greek grammar has a way <clears throat> of making an indefinite noun definite by placing it at a certain point in the sentence. And it should be, he is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is referring to himself as the legitimate shepherd of God's flock. And the reason is, he's entered the fold by the door. Now, there are some who jump down to verse 7 and say, uh, Jesus is the door. He says so in verse 7. And I think they're confused because verse 7 is a different analogy. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus is the true shepherd who enters the fold by the door. So he can't be the door. He's not entering by himself. In verse 7, he changes the analogy and says, I am the door, and that's a different picture. And then in verses 11 to 18, he goes back to the shepherd analogy. Now, to understand what Jesus is talking about here, you've got to get a picture again of this, uh, what was very familiar in that culture, and that is the sheepfold. Every village <clears throat> would have a common sheepfold, and the sheep at night would be brought into the village, and um, a common fold again, all the flocks mixed together, and there would be a doorkeeper hired to guard the sheep at night. And the fold would be, you know, have walls high enough, no animal could leap in there and wreak havoc on the flock. And uh, a thief or robber would have to climb up and over. It was a difficult process. 
And so the doorkeeper would guard the door by lying across it. And if any animal or any robber tried to get him by the door, he'd wake up and guard the sheep. And then in the morning, all the shepherds would return. They would call out their own sheep, as we'll see in a moment, by their own distinctive call and lead them out to pasture during the day. Now, as I mentioned, there are different views by commentators, so I'm going to just tell you that to let you know not everyone agrees with me. Some whom I respect argue that we shouldn't get too specific about what the allegory represents. I beg to differ. I think that um, we can make some helpful identifications here. First of all, the fold, I believe, is Judaism or Israel. Jesus, as already mentioned, is the good shepherd, the true shepherd, who comes in to lead his genuine uh, flock out to pasture, his flock whom the Father has given him. And we just saw an example of that in chapter 9, the man born blind. Um, The Pharisees, as mentioned, are the thieves and the robbers who are just trying to prey on the sheep for their own selfish ends. They're not genuine shepherds. But then the big question is, well, what is the door in verse 2 if it's not Jesus? In verse 7, it is Jesus. He says so. But in verse 2, I believe the door into the fold is the messianic office as set forth in all of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very clear about the credentials of the Messiah. For example, he would be born of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. He would be a descendant of David, Isaiah 9.7. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He would be born to a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He would give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He would make the lame walk, Isaiah chapter 35. He would be a prophet greater than Moses uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. He would be a light to shine on all who dwell in darkness, according to Isaiah chapter 9 and 42 and 49. He would also provide the water of God's spirit for thirsty souls, according to Isaiah 44.3. And I could go on and on. Those are just a few examples. And those are some of the examples that John has used already in his gospel, we've seen, to argue, as he's trying to do, Jesus is the Christ. He wants us to know he is the legitimate Messiah of Israel. There's an amazing little book I've appreciated for many years. I don't know if it's still in print. It's just a little moody paperback by a man named Peter Stoner, who was a professor of math, I think, at Westmont College back in his day. And in that um, book, he takes a number of prophecies, but in one chapter, he focuses in on Jesus Christ. And he narrows it down and just takes eight prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and he tries to answer this question. What is the chance that any man might have lived from the day of these prophecies down to the present time and have fulfilled all eight prophecies. And without going into how he does it, he takes a very conservative approach. Um, You know, in other words, he's not giving you high odds. He's giving you low. He comes up with a number of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. 
Now, we can't get our brains around that big of a number. But to illustrate it, Professor Stoner says, take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and spread them all over the state of Texas, and they will be two feet deep. Now, if you've ever driven from El Paso to Dallas, you know that is a big state. You drive and drive and drive and drive at 70 miles an hour and think, I'm never going to get there. He says, cover the entire state two feet deep, and you have 10 to the 17th silver dollars. Now, mark one of them, throw them somewhere in the state, blindfold a guy and say, you got all your life to look but you've got to pick the right one. That, those are the odds that Jesus fulfilled just eight Old Testament prophecies. Then he says, all right, what about 16? Now the number grows to where it's a sphere going from the earth beyond the sun of silver dollars. I mean, it's just inconceivable. And that's just 16. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. So his credentials show he is the only person who could have entered through that door of Old Testament predictions of who the Messiah will be. He's the legitimate one. Um, So first of all, Jesus' credentials show that he's the legitimate shepherd because he rebukes the false shepherds and exposes them. Also, his credentials show he is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And then thirdly, Jesus' credentials show that the doorkeeper opened to him as the true shepherd in verse 3. And again, some reputable commentators uh, think that we're going too far if we assign anyone as the doorkeeper. Uh, Others will say, well, it's God or the Holy Spirit. But I think pretty clearly in the Gospel of John, the doorkeeper is John the Baptist. Who opened the door for Jesus when he came? Well, he sent his messenger. And remember, John, in chapter 1, said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the messenger. And I'm crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's a prediction or a fulfillment of the prediction in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3. And John pointed to Jesus and said of him in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus came to the fold of Israel. John the Baptist opened the door to him and said, here is the Messiah. Remember, I'm not even worthy to untie the latchet of his sandals. There's the Messiah. He opened the door and Jesus came through the door of prophetic messianic scripture and he is uh, the true shepherd. So Jesus' credentials prove him to be the true shepherd. Secondly, Jesus' qualities also prove him to be the true shepherd. Now, if we were here and talked about all of Jesus' attributes, you might as well set up a tent. We'll be here a long, long time. I can't begin to go into all of Jesus' wonderful qualities that show him to be the true shepherd. Um, As he's going to go on and say, he's the true shepherd because he laid down his life. For the sheep. And that is the most marvelous quality. But here, just two things I want to point out. First of all, uh, Jesus, the true shepherd, provides personal care for his sheep, calling them by name. Notice verse 3, the last half. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep 
by name. Uh, every person growing up in that culture would have understood the illustration, which we don't, because Middle Eastern shepherd each had a distinct call, and their sheep would recognize the call and follow them and not someone else. And uh, there's an account of a man who saw this very thing a number of years ago. He records this. Early one morning, I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together, and the time had come for the shepherds to go in different directions. One of the shepherds stood some distance from the sheep and began to call. First one, and then another, and then four or five animals ran towards him, and so on, until he had counted his whole flock. And other accounts, uh, another writer tells of three or four shepherds who did the same thing, and all the sheep followed each of the three or four shepherds uh, to follow their voice as they led them out. But you know that personal touch. Isn't it nice when somebody knows your name? Maybe you have a restaurant or a store here in town, and you go in there, and the clerk or the waitress or somebody knows your name, and you just kind of feel good about that. Or I get a lot of missionary newsletters, and I recognize the need for missionaries to write form letters because they have so many to correspond with. But you know what I do when I get a letter from a missionary, a hard copy? I, I look down to the bottom, and if they scribbled a handwritten note personal to me, I always read that first. And then I go back and read their letter and pray for them. But it's just that personal touch, isn't it? We appreciate that. And what a blessing to know that if you're one of Jesus' sheep, he knows you by name. He knows you by name, and furthermore, he knows every single thing about you, including all the rotten things you've ever done, and yet he still loves you, and he cares for you as his sheep. What a blessing that our shepherd does that. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a good shepherd because I forget names, as I said, first hour I'm praying and I forget the name of the mother that I'm dedicating her baby, even though I know her very well. I, re I read a thing in Spurgeon this week. He said at one point he knew all 6,000 members in his flock by name. I can't conceive of that. I'm struggling the way it is. But Jesus never forgets your name, even if I do, okay? So please forgive me if I do sometime. But Jesus never forgets your name. He knows you as his sheep, and he cares for you. And then the second thing here about Jesus' qualities, Jesus, the true shepherd, provides leadership and protection for his sheep. And that's implied at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, where it says, he leads them out, and when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And Jesus is probably alluding here to Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. And Moses is praying about his successor, the man who would follow him as the leader of Israel. But I think beyond that, he is um, maybe unknowns to himself, praying for uh, the, the leader over God's entire uh, eternal flock. He says this, May the Lord... The God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in 
so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. That's talking about Jesus ultimately, isn't it? Uh, he's leading his true sheep out of this barren fold of Judaism with these false shepherds into the rich pastures of abundant life that we'll look at uh, next time. Notice something else, too. It doesn't say that Jesus drives his sheep. It says he leads them by going before them. He goes before them. Um, that's not how Western shepherds do it. One time, Marla and I were coming off of a 14er we'd climbed in Colorado, and we had just gotten down to tree line and, and were out of the high country there into the trees. And we heard this horrible racket, and we thought, what's going on? You know, usually it's quiet. And there's this big cloud of dust, and suddenly 2,000 sheep come right up this narrow trail. I mean, we had to get back, you know, and 2,000 sheep go by. And finally, here comes the shepherd, you know, and he's yelling at the sheep to get in line, and he's driving them up to their summer pasture. And I, he stopped long enough to tell me the number of them. There were over 2,000. But Jesus doesn't do that. And it means this. If he asks you to go somewhere, he's been there before you. You know, if he takes you through a trial, and that trial even is the valley of the shadow of death, he's gone there. He's been there. Hebrews says he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so he knows how to sympathize with what we are going through when we're tempted or when we're tried. And so what a wonderful shepherd. He always has our best interest at heart. And so we can submit to him and we can trust him and we can follow him. And that's the final thing here, that the shepherd's sheep follow him. Jesus says they do that because they know his voice, but they flee from shepherds whom they don't know. Notice the end of verse 4 and verse 5. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So there's two sides of it. First of all, the sheep follow him, the shepherd, because they know his voice. And uh, Jesus repeats that in verse 3 and in verse 4 and then negatively in verse 5. They don't know the voice of this stranger and won't follow him. Now, he's not talking about hearing an audible voice. And I sometimes meet dear brothers and sisters. Oh, the Lord told me. The Lord told me. And sometimes I'll ask them, did you hear a voice or what? Some of them have actually told me, yes, they hear the Lord's audible voice. I hate to doubt them, but I doubt them. Um, I don't think Jesus does that commonly. I think he does that on rare, rare, rare occasions. That if you really need a whack on the side of the head, he might speak audibly. But the way we hear the shepherd's voice is right here in the word of God. And granted... The Spirit of God sometimes will take a verse and just burn it into your heart like maybe he doesn't with other verses. Uh, the reason I'm a pastor, the Lord burned into my heart, I will build my church. And also, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And those two verses, just I couldn't shake them. And I thought, wow, if, if he's going to build his church and if he loves his church, then I need to build his church and love his church, and that's why I'm a pastor. Uh, he hasn't burned those verses into everybody's heart like he did mine, and that's fine. Um, but So sometimes the Spirit does that. Sometimes you're reading a Christian book, and a verse leaps out, and you go, wow. 
and it just hits you. Or maybe a brother in Christ, sister in Christ, offhandedly mentions something and the Spirit of God takes it. Fine, as long as it's in context. But sometimes people, oh, the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. And it's not related to Scripture or it's a verse out of context. And you're going, I don't think so. The Lord uses the Word through the Spirit, but the Word is in context. One time here in town, I think I told you this several months ago, there was a brother who's an elder at another church, and uh, they needed to deal with a situation in their church. It was very plain, a pastoral situation, and it had come up in the conversation. I didn't bring it up, but it was obvious they weren't obeying Scripture, and so I said to him, uh, why aren't you uh, following the Lord on that? And he said, oh, the Lord hasn't spoken to us about it. And I said, well, yes, he has. Oh, no, he hasn't, he hasn't spoken to us. I said, yeah, he did. It's right here in 1 Timothy 3. And I took him to the exact verse that refuted what they were doing or showed what they should be doing. And he said, no, no, the Lord hasn't given us that verse. And I said, huh? <laughs> you know, it's in the Bible. <laughs> He gave you that verse. It's inspired in the word of God. You are to apply it in this situation. But he was so subjective. You know, no, the Lord hasn't spoken. So don't go there. I'm talking about the word in its context. You know his voice. And then secondly and finally, Jesus says the shepherd's sheep flee from strangers whom they don't know. And one of the marks of genuine sheep is they persevere in sound doctrine. They don't follow these false shepherds. Maybe for a time, true sheep veer, but they're going to come back. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus is talking about the end times, and he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, I'm glad there's these two words, if possible, even the elect. Now, it's not possible. God's elect will persevere because uh, Jesus said in John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. We'll see the same thing in chapter 10 and later on here. Jesus doesn't lose sheep. He's the good shepherd. He keeps all his sheep. Now, having said that, let me say this. That doesn't get us off the hook for our responsibility to go deeper with the Lord in sound doctrine and, and to learn and grow in, so that we don't stray. Okay? In other words, God's sovereignty never negates human responsibility. They are always both true. And so even though we have the assurance, and it's for our assurance, that Jesus will not lose us as his sheep, we also have the responsibility as his sheep to persevere in sound doctrine. So encourage you to dig deeper in God's word and get some good theological books and read them prayerfully so that you grow in the knowledge of the truth. But the bottom line is this. It's not how much you know, it's who you know that counts. Because the Pharisees knew a lot. They knew a lot more than this blind man but he knew this, I was blind, and now I see. He knew the shepherd, and that's the crucial thing. Do you know the shepherd today? Is Jesus your good shepherd? Because he's opened your eyes, and you believed in him. 
Jesus prayed this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, I pray that everyone here would know Jesus. He is the only true shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He has our best interest at heart. Thank you that he died on the cross to save us from our sins. Thank you that as the true shepherd, he keeps us so that none of us will ultimately go astray and be lost. Thank you, Father, that he guards us against all the false teachers, the wolves, the thieves, the robbers that would seek to kill and destroy. Thank you that he gives us abundant life freely as his gift because he laid down his life for us. And I pray if there are any here who don't know Jesus, Father, that you would open their eyes this morning, that they would trust in him as their Savior, their Lord, their Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to conclude.